Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we're headed for a new year. I understand that uh, there are some court cases that we should be keeping our eye on as we turn that calendar page. Well, there are some court cases that are quite important, but before we get into those, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the meaning of Christmas. You know, you and I have talked about this a little bit, and we both had a relaxing Christmas at home this year, and since our kids are going to be coming over New Year's weekend instead of Christmas weekend, we've still got a Christmas celebration coming up for us, so we get the best of both worlds in a sense. But, you know, we talk about the war on Christmas, and it's been going on for some time. In fact, if anything, I think maybe we've been doing pretty well in that war lately. That I've just found at stores and so on, more people saying Merry Christmas and fewer people saying Happy Holidays or Season's Greetings or things like that. And so it seems to me like maybe we've turned the corner on this. But a lot of this goes back a long ways. And I'd like to read a column that was in the Sioux City Journal back in the 19, probably about 1970 or thereabouts. And anyway, it is by a Dr. Max Rafferty. Dr. Rafferty had been the state superintendent of schools for the state of California back at the time when California was still capable of electing a conservative. <laughs> and anyway, this is a, it's a story that he has written here, but it illustrates a very important point, I think. Public School 141 had done itself proud, everyone said. Mr. Sangstrom's woodwinds made the nutcracker suite come out lustily alive, and the elf ballet from the combined third grades was glowing as much from the fond applause it had received from an admittedly partisan audience as from the great performance of the skater's waltz, complete with artificial blizzard. Santa, in the padded person of Principal Joe Quimby, had come and gone, scattered his largest and painfully packaged by the PTA among the less sophisticated primary grade pupils. He ho-ho-hoed magnificently, even though the effect was somewhat marred by an obligato of subdued recognition on the part of the more knowledgeable fifth and sixth graders. A rousing and concluding chorus of jingle bells had sent the small fry off to the cafeteria for cookies and punch, served under the watchful and formidable eye of Mrs. Swenson, the food service director. The parents of Public School 141 voted thanks to the faculty, voiced appreciation to the program committee, and prepared to knock off for the holidays. Thus it had been for Christmas after Christmas, back to a time beyond which the memory of the oldest parent runneth not. But this once there is a brief hitch. Old Mr. Chambers got to his feet from his vantage point on the aisle in the twelfth row of folding chairs. His granddaughter, Elsie, was third vice president, and she had left the old man temporarily unattended while she went to round up some overlooked candy canes. His cracked voice rang out, What happened to the carols? Everyone said later it was the most embarrassing thing that had ever happened at a school Christmas party. Of course, old Mr. Chambers had lived on that Idaho ranch all his life until his wife died and he had come to the city where Elsie could take care of him. 
But just the same, didn't he know that carols had been prescribed from the schools since the late 60s? Couldn't he realize that prayers, spoken or sung in any form, were now legally taboo? Mrs. Gray, the flustered and mortified president, tried to explain as tactfully as possible, no use. Mr. Chambers was pretty excited. Can't have no Christmas without silent night and joy to the world, he yelled. So happens I've got my harmonica with me. I'll play him if you all sing. Blessed if he didn't pull out his mouth organ and start in. Well, naturally, this couldn't be allowed. Mrs. Gray was kind but firm. She spoke for all the parents when she told Elsie's grandpa that no religious songs could be sung on the school grounds. The old man was incredulous. You mean he ain't saying the Christmas songs no more? Why, in my day, everyone sang them and loved them, regardless of religion. They're a part of all of us. Who ever got hurt by a Christmas carol? Yes, sir, it was downright embarrassing. No one wanted to try to explain to the red-faced, shouting old man. Finally, they just all went home, leaving a humiliated Elsie to try to get her grandpa to go home, too. Grumbling, he went out into the parking lot at last, still clutching his harmonica. But then he shook off Elsie's arm and blew a defiant chorus of, O come all ye faithful. Luckily, Everyone had gone, and no one heard it but his granddaughter. For several minutes, the old man stood quite still. Then he slipped the harmonica into his coat pocket and looked up searchingly into a frosty sky. Above the deep and dreamless sleep of all the city's children, it seemed that he and he alone could see the silent stars go by and hear the angels sing. Well, I hope we've all had a Christmas in which we've been able to see those silent stars go by and hear the angels sing and to understand that that is the true meaning of what Christmas is all about. In fact, last Sunday, in my Christmas message at church, I preached on the words of the angels in their chorus when they praised God and they said or sang, the word could mean either, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The title of my message was The Two Dimensions of Christmas. And I'm suggesting there is a vertical dimension, glory to God in the highest, and an earthly dimension, peace, goodwill toward men. And that for a truly balanced Christmas, we need to understand and focus on both. I strongly emphasize the vertical aspect of Christmas because it seems like that's the one that is so easy to neglect today. We get so wrapped up in the commercialism, and I'm not going to say that commercializing Christmas is wrong, but it can't be allowed to detract from the spiritual meaning. And we get so wrapped up in the food, the gifts, and even the friends and relatives and loved ones that we forget that this is a holiday for God. Glory to God in the highest. And what do we mean by glory to God? And why does God want glory? Is God some third world dictator that just wants everybody constantly saying Sieg Heil to him and praising him? Or 
Is he psychologically insecure that he needs his ego reaffirmed by this constant praise? That's not what glorifying God is all about. Glorifying God means glorifying not just him, but who he is, his attributes, his perfect love, his perfect justice, his perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect truth. And the whole creation benefits when we identify with the attributes of God. That's why we're commanded to glorify him. Not just that he needs all the glory, but that we need it for us. But then there's also the earthly aspect, peace, goodwill toward men. And peace, the word there, of course, refers to, first of all, the peace that we have with God, the peace that comes from the knowledge that there's no more enmity between us and God, that the penalty for sin has been paid, and we will not have to pay that penalty, so we have peace with God. And then the peace of God, that is the inner peace, the peace of mind that we can experience even in the midst of great adversity, and the peace from God. And that I describe as the peace that comes in family relations, in relations within the community, relations within the world, but goodwill toward men. Now, the Revised Standard Version says goodwill or, or peace toward all those pleasing him or peace to men with whom he is well pleased. That was the version I was taught when I was a child. And I used to listen to that and I would think, oh, isn't that wonderful that we were all so good that God rewarded us for our goodness by giving us this beautiful baby at Christmas. That is not the meaning at all. God didn't give us the baby Jesus because we are good. He gave us the baby Jesus because we're not good, because we need a Savior. And that's what Christmas is really all about. You can't separate Christmas from Good Friday and Easter Sunday. God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. If it wasn't for Christmas, Good Friday and Easter Sunday wouldn't take place. They'd be impossible. But if it wasn't for Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Christmas would be meaningless. So we need to see those together. I could go into the Greek here, the Eudakia or Eudakias, whichever it is, a couple of the Early manuscripts put an S on the end. Some of them don't. So whether it is a noun or a verb, it depends on that. But I personally believe that it is goodwill toward God, not peace toward men of goodwill, because the whole theme is God giving to us. But my point is this. There is a vertical aspect of Christmas, our glory to God. There is a horizontal aspect to Christmas, and that is our relations to others. And Christmas should be a time when we enjoy the gifts that God has given us, when we see the beauty of the lights and all of this reflects the glory of God, when we are with friends, with family, all of which is again a gift from God and showing forth the love that 
God has shown us, all of this is a part of what Christmas is all about. And, well, I love the traditional Christmas carols, and that's my preference, is the traditional carols. And, by the way, I thought the Mormon Tabernacle Choir did an excellent job of combining both this year in their performance. I thought it was an excellent performance where good Christian men rejoice and other of the traditional Christmas hymns tied in with I'll be home for Christmas and so on. Both of those are appropriate. Everybody should come home at Christmas. And when I say come home, I mean come home in the heart. Not everybody can come home physically. Sometimes the home where you were brought up in doesn't even exist anymore. But everyone has a home in our heart where our earliest Christmases were spent. And even if it's a few days after Christmas, we should all go back to those homes. But we celebrate. But as we celebrate, let's not forget, it's his birthday. It's not our birthday. Anyway, so with that, I give a belated Merry Christmas. And as far as I am concerned, the Christmas season hasn't ended. I say about the Christmas carols that they are probably the most beautiful music that has ever been written. And I would agree with Martin Luther when he says that next to the word of God, music is the greatest gift that God has given us. And he's given us the gift of music not only to edify us, but to glorify him. If you love the Christmas carols, don't think you have to stop singing them just because it's no longer December 25th. You can sing them through New Year. In fact, I'll still have them in my CD player in my car probably into February at least. <laughs> but at any rate... Continue to enjoy that beautiful music of Christmas. Well, let's move on and talk about a few things that are going on from the legal standpoint today. And one of these is a decision of the Supreme Court that they are temporarily going to keep in effect this Title 42. And a lot of people are wondering, what is this all about, this Title 42? Is it a statute? Is it an administrative regulation? And what's the conservative position on this? We saw five conservative justices led by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by Scalia and Alito and Barrett and Kavanaugh wanting to keep that regulation in effect, at least until late February when a full hearing can take place. And then we had the dissenting opinion, and interestingly enough, Justice Gorsuch, who has become one of my favorites on the court, but Justice Gorsuch wrote the dissenting opinion, and his dissenting opinion was joined by this new Justice Katanja Brown. And then you have the other two liberal justices on the court, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan, also dissenting. But... First of all, what is Title 42? Title 42 is part of a public health act, public health act that was passed way back in 1942. And it was passed for the purpose of giving the administration the authority to restrict immigration from countries where there could be a public health threat. Now that's an act, as I say, that was passed in 1942. But the Trump administration put a regulation in effect as an executive order 
which he was authorized to do under the act, that because of the COVID threat, aliens coming into this country from various other countries, where it was deemed there might be a COVID threat, were to be returned to their home countries while their case was adjudicated. Now, no less than 2.2 million were returned to Mexico alone, as well as others returned to other countries over this. Now, here is where the question comes in. First of all, what is the purpose of an immigration policy? And who has authority over immigration? Basically, for the most part, that authority under our Constitution is vested in Congress. However, states also have a responsibility for protecting their own border. And not only do we have many of our states that border Canada, but we have states that border Mexico, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. And the governors of several of these states have been very concerned about the effect of immigration because one of the things that they were especially concerned about is that if the order that was given under Title 42, and this order is not Title 42, it is given under Title 42, if that order comes to an end, it there is every appearance that this is going to lead to a surge of immigrants coming to this country. Part of the reason for this is that those who smuggle immigrants in, coyotes as we call them, they that, that's the name given to people who make a living out of bringing immigrants into this country, many times illegally, and you pay a coyote a certain amount and he'll stuff you in the back of a truck and get you across the border and release you in the desert somewhere and and get you into this country. But they have many times been misleading people, telling them that the immigration policies are now relaxed and they'll be able to get in with no problem at all. That's one of the reasons we're having this problem. And anyway, so as a result, if this restriction is lifted, then it could lead to a major surge of immigrants coming into this country. And many governors are concerned about this, particularly the governors of several of these border states that think that this is going to be a real danger to this country if we have this surge of immigrants, some of whom may be illegal, some of whom may have criminal intent, some of whom may have health issues that they will spread in this country. And anyway, so they have argued before the Supreme Court, look, lifting this order is going to have a very detrimental effect upon our state. And we want to be heard in court so that we can tell you what the effect is going to be. Well, there are a couple of basic principles involved here. And where I'm inclined to agree with Chief Justice Roberts and the majority on this, I also have to say that I understand Justice Gorsuch's point. First of all, what Justice Gorsuch has said is that this is an administrative order. It is not a law, although it is authorized by the Public Health Service Act of 1944, but it is not a law by itself. And the authority of the president and his agencies to issue executive orders 
in the face of pandemics is highly limited. Now, notice that Justice Gorsuch is being consistent here. It is Justice Gorsuch, probably even more than any of the other conservative justices, although Justice Alito and Justice Thomas have been with him completely on this, but he has really taken the lead in striking down these various measures by the states and by the federal government that have imposed restrictions on church attendance and other such restrictions during the pandemic that have tried to use the occupational Health and Safety or Safety and Health Administration Act as a basis for requiring all those who make contracts with the federal government and all employers of a certain number of employees to require their employees to get COVID vaccination. Justice Gorsuch has been a leader in saying that this cannot be done by administrative agencies. And he's famous for his statement that the Constitution does not end during a pandemic. On one occasion, he said, even if the Constitution must take a holiday during a pandemic, that holiday cannot become a sabbatical. In other words, it has to be at the most <clears throat> a very temporary measure. And Justice Gorsuch was saying that the purpose of this original order by the Trump administration was to restrict immigration at a time when we are dealing with a COVID crisis. That crisis has largely passed, and therefore, there is no basis for continuing that order into effect. And if the administration wants to lift that order, they should be free to do so. Now, it's interesting. I think he is being very consistent on that. He has been opposed to these restrictive COVID orders when they were administered by Governor Cuomo of New York and Governor Newsom of California. And he has also been very critical of such orders when they're administered by President Biden saying, for example, that President Biden cannot extend the authority that Congress has granted to OSHA. And anyway, now he's saying the same here under immigration. It's interesting that the liberal justices on the court, I think, are being inconsistent when they have been all for, restrictor, all for these restrictive orders on COVID that restricted churches and businesses. But now when we're talking about restricting illegal immigrants, they want to allow illegal immigrants into the country. And so they've been eager to strike those restrictions down. So Justice Gorsuch, I think, is being consistent in saying we have to limit executive power here. But there is another principle here, and that is that when there is uncertainty in a legal matter. For example, when we want to hear what the states have to say, why they feel they have a role in defense here, and why they're concerned about these matters, that this should be left to, that we should keep the order in effect, and keep the status quo in effect, until we've had a full hearing, and that's going to take place in late February, and then maybe Congress will act. And we 
are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I appreciate this last court case that you were talking about. Uh, in particular, you know how uh, a pandemic can kind of turn into an excuse to perpetuate uh, holding on to power or um, ignoring limitations on power. And something that has, has jumped out at me is I understand the Department of Defense has uh, now rescinded its mandate that uh, service members have to be vaccinated. And I'm just wondering, is, is there any word on what might happen to those who have been discharged because they didn't take the vaccine? Well, is, is it likely they would be reinstated or is that, is that a court case you know, for, for down the road? Good question. And we don't have a clear answer to that yet. I can tell you this, that, and I've been following this pretty closely, but so far as I know, there is no plan on the part of the Department of Defense right now to reinstate those who have either left or been discharged because of the COVID policy. That could change, but as of right now, there isn't. I can tell you also that President Trump, when he announced his campaign for a new term of office for 24, he said that if he is elected, that every soldier who was discharged will be allowed back in. So that's his campaign promise, but that, of course, is not necessarily going to happen because we don't know whether he's going to get back into office or not. But I can tell you this, that first of all, in the court cases that were filed here, that we were very successful. And I was just very pleased with the way the courts generally ruled on these military cases. And honestly, I thought we had a bit of an uphill battle because there's generally been a policy that when the military says military discipline or military necessity requires that we do something a certain way, the courts generally have been rather reluctant to intervene. And that's with good reason. You know, if the military says we need this for military discipline, the military are experts on military discipline. Some federal judge who chances are doesn't own a firearm and has never served in the military a day in his life doesn't really understand the needs of military discipline. And so, although we still say the Constitution applies to those who are in the military, we do give some deference to the military when they say we have needs of military discipline. For example, Back, I suppose this would have been back in the 1970s, we had a case of Goldman versus Weinberger. The case involved a military doctor, Dr. Captain Goldberg, who he was Jewish, and because of his Orthodox Jewish religion, he believed that he was to wear the Jewish yarmulke instead of wearing the regular, regular military headgear. And so this went up to the Supreme Court when he challenged it. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 vote, held that if the military says that it is necessary for discipline, that all military people wear the same headgear, we're not going to second-guess and say they're wrong. Interestingly enough, a couple of years later, Congress rescinded the requirement and said that we'll make an exception for Jews who want to wear the amulka and a few other exceptions as well. But that's appropriate because that was Congress, which has supervisory authority over the military, making that decision, not the court trying to oppose it on them. So, interesting case. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit of feel here, but we have had 
quite a number of successes in the court in regard to the requirement that all military people be vaccinated. And the military was allowing exemptions for those who had a religious objection or for those who had medical reasons to be exempt, for example, a reaction to a previous vaccine or something like that. And they were granting these medical exemptions quite freely, but hardly any religious exemptions were granted. And in fact, nearly all of the religious exemptions that were granted were granted to people that were in the process of separating from the military anyway. Anyway, so we won quite a few cases, and these were put into the form of class actions protecting all people in the military who had religious objections. We had one class action order protecting all Marines, another protecting all Navy personnel, another protecting all Air Force personnel. We had cases currently pending affecting the Army and affecting the Coast Guard with no clear orders on those yet. But point of the matter is, this really disrupted the careers of quite a number of military people for quite a while. But toward the end, it looked like they were winning. I had one, for example, it was a lieutenant colonel in the Marines, 17 years exemplary record, combat service and so on. And his whole career was in jeopardy because for religious reasons, he refused to get the vaccination. And it looked like he was facing a discharge. But anyway, as of right now, he and all similarly situated Marines, Air Force and Navy are protected by court orders. Well, now we have the Defense Authorization Act of 2020, I guess it's 2022 that covers the year 2023. And over the objections of the Biden administration, this act includes a provision that rescinds the vaccination requirement and basically says that the military can no longer require this. And they say the Biden administration objects to this, but while the president has a veto power, he doesn't have the line item veto. And I'm pretty glad that he doesn't, because that way he could just line out anything in a bill that he didn't like and put the rest into effect. And I'm quite sure that he would have lined out this provision of the bill, but he was then faced with, with this bill. He was going to have to sign this bill into law that, ex that no longer requires the vaccination, or else he was going to have to veto the entire defense authorization bill, which he couldn't really do. So he assigned it into effect. Anyway, as of right now, the result of this is that military people are now protected. How far they're protected is not clear. Here's the problem is that, well, these orders that we had before prohibited the military from discharging or disciplining any person who refused to get the, the vaccination. It didn't say that the military couldn't consider that in deciding whether to assign somebody or to give a person a position as a commander or to send somebody overseas or put somebody in command of a battleship or something like that. In other words, they could still consider vaccination in how they handled their administrative assignments because that wasn't either discipline or discharge, even though it can have a strong effect on somebody's officer effectiveness reports and therefore 
on their ultimate promotion and retention. Well, anyway, so whether those orders are going to be changed, the answer is that this bill gives good protection to those who are in the military right now. What it is going to do for those who are discharged or those who've left because they wouldn't go along with the policy, at this point, I think it's too early to say. But I have been telling people for the last several years, military people, civilians, both people who have been having this issue of I might lose my job if I don't get the vaccination and so on. I've been telling them, as much as you can do to delay, do it. Time is on our side on this one. And I think this shows that, yes, time has been on our side. And I can only say it looks good, and I am thankful for this, this provision. I was surprised they actually got it passed, but they did. So I, that's about as well as I can answer that question, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, there's a couple other interesting cases that are going on. And one is a local case here in Alabama. It involves a preacher who last Halloween, he was preaching on the streets of Selma, Alabama. There was a Halloween event going on and he was basically preaching against revelry and the like, but also preaching against some of the satanic aspects of Halloween. And he was stopped by two police officers. Now, this is not a racial incident. The preacher is black. Both of the police officers were black. And Selma, of course, has quite a history of racial strife. But right now, the, Selma is majority black. And the government of the city of Selma is pretty much black controlled. So this is not a racist matter. But here's a black preacher who is stopped by these black policemen. And he has a he has a microphone and he is speaking to this crowd of people as they are passing by. Some of them are listening to him a little bit, but most of them are just passing by, but they're hearing him. Anyway, and so the officers ask, Can we see your paperwork? And he says, Paperwork? I don't have any paperwork. And anyway, they all say, Well, you, you can't be out here preaching if you don't have a permit. And our position on this is that you do not need a permit to exercise a constitutional right. And the only permit he needs to be out there preaching is the First Amendment. First Amendment that guarantees free exercise of religion and that guarantees freedom of speech. That's all the permit he needs. Now, granted, we do have something we call, we call time, place, and matter restrictions. And the government can impose reasonable restrictions to make sure that we're not interfering with other activity. For example, if you were to stand out in the middle of Main Street right during rush hour traffic and start preaching or speaking on a political subject and so on, they would have the right to restrict that. But he was not blocking any traffic. He was not getting in the face of anybody. He was speaking respectfully. He wasn't, he was being loudly so he could be heard, but not shouting or screaming or in any way disrespectful of anybody. He wasn't getting in anybody's face. And anyway, so they charged him. They put handcuffs on him and took him away in the police car and made him post bail. Has a hearing coming up January 25th. But 
They charged him with disorderly conduct. There's nothing about his conduct that was disorderly. He is always respectful to of the officers, always addresses them as sir, and is not shouting or screaming at, at them, simply saying, I have a right to be doing this. And when they ordered him to stop, in fact, when there was, it's not quite clear from the video whether the police officers told him it was because he had a mic that he had to have a permit or whether somebody else said that. But at any rate, when they said that, he put down the microphone and started speaking without the microphone. He said, you still can't do it. You got to have a permit. And when he insisted on continuing to preach, they arrested him. Well, the statute, if you read, it talks about obscene or profane or offensive conduct or language. Well, there's nothing obscene, nothing profane there. As far as offensive, well, our argument is that, first of all, you can't ban speech just because somebody finds it offensive. And in a Bible-built town like Selma, Alabama, yes, there may be some people who are going to be offended at a message like this, but there's also going to be a lot of people who are going to approve the message. And so we're saying that, first of all, the term offensive is vague, and we have a requirement in law that if a statute is vague, then it is void, especially as a criminal statute, because people are entitled to know with reasonable certainty what the law allows and does not allow. And the fact that somebody out there in the audience finds speech offensive is not a basis to ban it. Some speech is supposed to be offensive. That's why we have speech sometimes. It's sometimes preaching and other forms of speech are supposed to offend. Sometimes there are things we need to be offended about. And yes, it may not be pleasant to be offended by to hear offensive speech, but that's part of the price we pay of living in a free society. And I certainly wouldn't want it any other way. Anyway, so the foundation has agreed to represent him at his January 25th hearing. We believe we've got very good grounds to say that Number one, we don't think his conduct violates the statute. And number two, we think the statute, as it's being implied here, is unconstitutional. Anyway, so that's going to make an interesting case, and we'll tell you more about it as the time goes on. Well, there's one other case that we have here that we filed an amicus brief on, and interestingly enough, it's quite similar to the one I just mentioned. And this involves a Mr. Keister, Keister, I believe he pronounces his name, but he was a traveling evangelist who had come to the University of Alabama. And he was on a public street. It's a city street, although it borders the university, and the university, by an agreement of the city, has some control over the street itself. But anyway, he is there preaching, and again, not disrupting traffic, pedestrian traffic or automobile traffic, either one. And the university officials or university policeman comes to him and tells him that he is in violation of policy, that if you are going to engage in speech of this nature in this part of the campus, you have to apply in advance for a permit. And he had not done so. And so he was not criminally charged in this. I'm not sure the 
university police even have the authority to criminally charge him. But they basically gave him a choice of being arrested or leaving, and he chose to leave. But then he went to the Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Alliance Defending Freedom came to us and asked us to file an amicus brief on his behalf, and so we have done so. And again, we've argued that the university does not have the authority to restrict speech on this particular street. This is a street that is frequented by not only university students and faculty, but by members of the public as well. It goes through the university to businesses on the other side, and people who are not students will be using it just to get to those businesses. We're arguing the university has no authority to restrict speech in this way. We're also arguing it's discriminatory in that, as far as we know, nobody else has been banned from, from speaking in this way. They singled him out, we think, because he was talking on a religious subject. Anyway, if this has gone all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is now going to be deciding whether to grant certiorari and hear this case. And so we have filed an amicus brief in support of Mr. Keister here, and hopefully the court will hear the case, and hopefully the court will say in this case that this is unlawful discrimination against religious speech, and therefore it violates the First Amendment. Several of the rulings that the Supreme Court made during this past term, those that came out last May and last June, we think are strong precedents that will argue very strongly in favor of Mr. Keister in this case, and also in favor of the man that we're defending in the Selma case. So these are some interesting matters that are going on, and it tells us that we're probably going to have another very interesting year in the Supreme Court and in other courts as well. The battles that we've talked about before, they're continuing. And it's good that we now have a more favorable court to consider these things, but I think we've got a court right now that's simply going back to what the Constitution originally said and meant, rather than try to read meanings into it that are simply not there. Anyway, so that's where we are with the courts right now. And do you have any thoughts on this, Brian? No, I'm very grateful that there are educated minds like yours and and institutions like the Center for Moral Law that are helping to fight these battles. And it, it really strikes me, Colonel, uh, there is never a point where we can just sit back and say, okay, this is it. Our freedoms are secure. You know, we've, we've secured them, and now they will continue in perpetuity. There's always some kind of opposition that is seeking to separate us from them. So I, I'm grateful that there are people who prepare and, and fight these battles for us. Well, I always love that statement of Ronald Reagan, that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. It only takes one generation that doesn't appreciate its freedoms to squander them all. And people don't simply say, I don't like freedom anymore. I want to be controlled. And government officials don't simply come in and say, we want to control you. Rather, these restrictions come in when there is a reason. For example, the COVID pandemic. I don't believe that people, there may be some, but I'd like to think that most of those who were public health officials and others that were imposing these restrictions, they weren't simply looking for an excuse to 
ban freedom and gain totalitarian control, I would like to believe most of them at least sincerely thought that they were protecting people from a dangerous threat, the pandemic of, of COVID. However, in doing so, they have set precedents that will certainly be used in future COVID battles. That's why it's still so important today that as we look to these cases going on, there still are cases that even though the COVID threat seems to have abated somewhat, there still is a COVID threat right now, but it's in connection with RSV, respiratory disease, and also with flu and cold season, and which is which is sometimes a little hard to say. And the current strains of COVID seem to be much less severe than the early ones and are more likely to be just like a bad cold or something. But at any rate, it's still around. But there, there are going to be future threats. There's going to be future emergencies. The great blizzard that has swept the country, for example, and other epidemics that are going to cross this country. And we're going to be facing threats to our liberties regularly in the future. And that's why the precedents that are set in the courts right now are going to be so important as to how those matters are going to be handled in the future. If the courts are clearly saying that they can restrict liberties during a pandemic, then that will be the basis for doing so in the future. But if courts like Justice Gorsuch and others, if they prevail and as a result of what the stand that they're taking is, the courts are, are, are going to be saying, wait a minute, even though there's a pandemic, we still have the Constitution and the Constitution still applies and you can't trample on people's constitutional rights. That's going to be vital as future emergencies come up. So watch these cases. Here are the foundation for moral law. We, of course, are very concerned about these cases. We're getting involved in these. Besides the one that I've just mentioned there in Selma, we also have one going on right now involving a pastor in Louisiana. This pastor continued to hold church services in violation of a governor's order that Churches had to basically close down during the pandemic period, even though the state Supreme Court has struck down the governor's orders, we're still litigating over the extent to which the governor has authority in this area. And so we have a case that is pending before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on that right now. <clears throat> Those who want to know what the foundation is doing in this area, I'd urge you to look to our website moral law m-o-r-l-l-a-w dot org and there you'll see a lot of the things that we're doing there and of course if you care to support the work there's a place on the foundation website where you can make a contribution anyway so these battles continue and thank you brian for the loving liberty broadcast and constitution classroom here where we continue to apprise people of what's going on in this area well, it's good to have this research, this resource rather, and it's it's great to be a part of this. I know there's a lot that's lining up right now that uh, that looks very foreboding. Uh, some would say downright threatening. Uh, we don't appear to be moving, you know, as a nation in in a very positive direction. In fact, I, I think students of history would agree we're we're probably heading more towards decline than not than not rather. But uh, Colonel, you can feel free to disagree me, with me if you'd like. But um, 
knowing the foundations, knowing the, the basis on which our governmental system was founded, on which our rights exist, it's not like we're left in the dark. I mean, we have the instructions if we just uh, will educate ourselves and, and use them. And those instructions spiritually are found in the Word of God, the Bible, and for political purposes are found in the U.S. Constitution, which is drafted on principles that are consistent with the Bible. And anyway, so yes, we have the principles. As I remember seeing a cartoon once where somebody said, when all else fails, read the original instructions. And those instructions, the Bible and the Constitution. Amen. So blessed new year to all.